So I finished my sermon last week by comparing Jesus to the Mandalorian. Again, that was not an endorsement of the Mandalorian. And the point was really because of this passage here. Right at the end of Isaiah 40, right after the voices of comfort had spoken, it said, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. So right, the power and the strength of the Lord are on display. It's like, look, he's coming, and he's got power and strength. But then it also, he's tender. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And my point was that we long for a hero like that. We want someone who's super strong and can crush all the enemies. But it also is tender and scoops us up and keeps us safe. Who can do both things? Jesus. He's strong enough to quiet the waves with a whisper. He's powerful enough to summon Lazarus from the dead. But he's tender enough to say to the children, let those kids come into my presence. He's tender enough to defend the prostitute whom everyone else is ready to condemn. Jesus is powerful, then he's tender. Right, so where we are now in this chapter, which comes so much around the theme of comfort, comfort, take comfort, is this. There is a spirit of resistance in Israel to the message that God's comfort is coming, right? If you remember the three voices, the first one said, right, prepare the way, the Lord is coming. The second one said, the word of God endures forever. Remember that? And the third one said, go shout it on the mountaintops. Behold our God, strong and tender, right? Those were the voices, but there is a spirit of resistance to that. And here is the kind of the nature of it. This is toward the end of Isaiah 40, and this is why we're about to read what we're about to read. It's about answering this objection. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Okay, this was their complaint. God doesn't see me. God doesn't help me. Where is God? My way is hidden. My cause is ignored. That's the underlying complaint here. Let's see how the Lord responds. Who has measured the waters in the, in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Now there's a lot, of, let's pause there. There's a lot of interesting verbs in this section. Look at this word measure. Who has measured the waters? That also means regulate. It's kind of the verb used to talk about the settings on a tool. Now, primitive tools wouldn't be as fancy as our tools today. But, you know, if you went 
uh, and picked up a, a decent tool, there's usually a couple settings on it. You might have to adjust the tension, you might have to set the, the right bit in or the torque. You gotta get it to work right, right? And he's saying, who, who regulated the waters? Who measured them in the hollows of his hand? There's this picture here that God is methodically, but very easily creating the world, right? He's doing it as easily as you set the dinner table. You don't think much about it. You go, or your kids go, or some combination of both. You get the plates, you put them down, you get the forks, you set them out. Maybe you pour the water ahead of time. You hope no one knocks it over. <laughs> and you get the table all ready, right? The other cultures of their day, they had stories about how God created the world. But they're each built on human imagination. There's some echoes of the truth. And they're not built on revelation. So, for instance, in Babylon, you had a god called Marduk. Can you say Marduk? Marduk? That's a good name, right? Marduk had to consult another god called Ea the Wise. Yahweh, the god of Israel, didn't consult anyone. In Canaanite stories of creation, uh, it was more of a battle. God was going to battle chaos. Yahweh doesn't battle anybody. He brings order out of chaos, but there's no resistance. It's just the word of the Lord has spoken. So let's answer the questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? God, right? Who has marked off the heavens, right? Like you might mark off something you're about to paint or cut. Who has marked off the heavens? Well, God has, right? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weigh the mountains on the scale, right? And put them on the balance. Who does these things? God does. Well, then who can fathom or instruct the Lord as his counselor? What's the answer to that question? No one does, right? What about the next question? Whom did the Lord enlighten, you know, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught God the right way? Well, no one did, right? Who was it that taught God knowledge? How did God know anything? Who showed God the path of understanding? No one did. Do you see how he's building this up? So there's this picture of God, and he's got all of creation, kind of the water in his hands, and the earth in his baskets, and laid out on the scales. And the whole point is this. No one compares to our God. No one does. Now, what about the nations? We have some pretty impressive nations on this planet. Do they compare to our God? Were they the ones that helped our God? This is the next session. He says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket that God's carrying. Right? That's the image here. God's got a bucket. God's got scales. He's got all these things, if you will, that he's built and measured the earth with. Now, look how they all contrast. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on the scales. Now we worked kind of hard to get the dust off the floor yesterday. Uh, when you when you sand and spackle, you create a lot of dust. Even if you measured all the dust we created in there and put it on a scale, it would be like nothing. Dust is hard to pick up because it's barely there. God weighs the mountains. God weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon was a country famous for its forests. Kind of like Pennsylvania, 
Pennsylvania had tons of forests and still does, right? You drive down 76, all you see are forests. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. They're saying this country filled with woods doesn't have enough wood in it to burn a fire for God, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than Anyone know where this is? Pittsburgh, right? No matter how great a city might be. Anyone know where this is? No? It's not in America. Shanghai! Anyone here been to Shanghai? Jet setters, neither have I. I'd like to go there. Isn't this an amazing construction here? This is right on the harbor, right? How about this? Anyone know where this city is? Where is it? Paris, right? We got a, a little a tower. It's not quite as impressive as these, but it's got its own history to it, right? All these great nations, all these great cities are as nothing when compared to the Lord. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? The very greatest, biggest, the things that take our breath away Right, if you went to Shanghai and stood on top of that tower and looked down, you would probably be filled with some awe and wonder. Because that's really high. And you would see sprawling out before you all that we've created. And God says, compared to me, it's less than nothing. Which is why it says in the psalm we read this morning, he who sits in the heavens, laughs at the idea that the nations could ever come against the mission of God. And if all the nations on the earth are nothing, then surely all the people, if you gathered the very smartest people on the planet and put them all together and set them to work on a great project, and they all collaborated and they researched for years and they managed to do this without antagonizing each other and they all set their minds to it. Could they come up with something new that they could teach God? If the very smartest humans for it took a century to work together to develop something profoundly new, could they come up with one single shred of information or knowledge that would be new to God? They can't. I had a teacher, right? You had teachers. God has no teacher. And the more I reflect on that, the more mind-blowing that is, that no matter what we discover, Lord willing, we've discovered a vaccine for COVID. God already knew it. It's by God's grace that we can discover it. It's not like it didn't exist before. There was a way we had to find it. Truth is never newly created. It's discovering what God has already ordered. And so God has no teacher because he's created all things. And he knows all things from the end to the beginning. It's astounding what God does. It's astounding who God is. All of our best nations are his. And that doesn't mean that God hates the nations. It just means that compared to God, 
They're like nothing. Now let me ask you a simple question here. How does this speak to the feeling that our way is hidden before God? That's the underlying complaint. That's what keeps you from experiencing the comfort of God's presence. You think that sometimes your ways are hidden. That God's not fighting for your son. Right? Because this is all addressing that underlying issue, that sense of doubt that God's really there. This is what God... Look two chapters ahead here in Isaiah. I'm pointing this passage out because it ties back to what he, who he is as creator. Okay? This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its peoples and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This passage says, I, Yahweh, have called you the Messiah. I will take hold of your hand. I'll make you to be a covenant, which is why Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant, right? I'll send you to be a light to the Gentiles. You will bring truth and life outside of Israel. I will keep you. I will, you're going to open the eyes that are blind. You're going to set free the captives. So the first connection I want you to see is that the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, he sees you. And he has come to you in Jesus Christ. Your way has not been hidden. Your way is never hidden from God who made you. That ought to comfort you. You're not alone. You're not isolated. You're not abandoned from God. But jump back. If the nations don't compare to God, he says in verse 18, with whom then will you compare God? Right? Well, it wasn't the nations. To what image will you liken him? Is it perhaps other gods? Here's a temple. Can you see it? It's got all sorts of little dudes on here. I don't think that's the proper religious term, but I don't quite know who everyone is on the building. This is more of a close-up. Right? Ancient cultures have always painted their gods and carved out their gods and created their gods. What did he say? What image will you liken him to? Does this image tell you anything true about God? Does this picture tell you a single shred of true information about what God is really like? It does not, does it? Look what Isaiah says. This is the answer to his question, right? Who can compare to God? He says, as for an idol, a metal worker casts it, right? They shape it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. Uh, but what if you're poor? Well, a poor person, person too poor to present such an offering, selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So the, perp, the rich person gets to buy a metal god. The poor person gets stuck with a wooden god. Um, 
but they're just worshiping what they made. Look at the sarcasm here, okay? This is a few chapters later, Isaiah 44. This is one of my favorite chapter passages in the Bible, purely for its sarcasm. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. <laughs> right? This is uh, someone having a, a nice barbecue in the backyard. From the rest, he makes a god. And his idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. You know, I even made my cookies on it. I baked bread over the coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? That's what they're, he's saying, no one asks this question. No one says, well, with some of the metal, I made a spear, and with the rest of it, I worship God. It's like you go into your Lego bin, kids, right? You get all your Legos out on the floor, and you build an awesome house with some of your Legos. And you go, well, I've got Legos left. I might as well build an idol and worship that, right? It makes no sense. It's crazy talk, but... When you flip it around and you let Jesus speak to us, suddenly what seems so funny out there like lands on us pretty hard. Jesus said, no one can serve, that's kind of worship language too, okay? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and what? Money. Money, even by AD 35, had pretty much knocked all the other idols off their pedestals. Money is about the only external idol left in our culture. And we're, we're taught from a very young age that money is worth our best energy. It's worth years of our life. It's worth the focus of our schooling. Sometimes we're taught it's worth neglecting our families. If we just get money, we're taught we'll be okay. And we go after it. And then we think to ourselves, all right, if I get enough money, money will bless me with the things that I want and need. And so money is worthy of me. It's worthy of my life's pursuit, right? It's like the only external idol left. And as Christmas comes, this ratchets up, doesn't it? You see it in the commercials. Money can buy you joy. Money can buy you comfort. Money can buy you merriness. Right? That's the whole advertising scheme. Look at what money can get you if you just put it in the right spot. Our product, right? Our car, our dog food, whatever it is. And so you have to be careful, Christians in America, because this is the God that will rival your heart. This is the idol you will worship if you don't worship the one true God. You're not going to go and find that picture of the statue and go chase down idols across the world. Your idol in America is money. The blessings money promises are the blessings that threaten your faith. Do you need money? You do need money. Money is a tool. But Jesus says the love of money leads to great evil. 
Why? Because we can't love money and love God at the same time. So I want you to examine your hearts today and look at how tightly, because we, we got to do this work, because we're in the thick of a culture that worships money. It gets into us. We're not immune. We love money more than we should because we live in a prosperous nation that says whoever has the most money are the best humans, right? That's what it says. And there's a part of you that thinks all my real needs will be satisfied if I just have a little more money. And it's just not true. The idols are as nothing. Nations are as nothing. Money is as nothing compared to God. But do you believe it? With whom then will you compare God? And what is the answer? Nothing. God is beyond. Not nations, not idols, not money, not knowledge, not health. God is beyond compare. Which is why he says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And what was God pleased to do? The creator becomes the creation. The one who holds everything in his hands humbles himself to rescue his children, to recover sight, to deliver prisoners by dying on a cross. The perfect one comes to become our sin that we might become his righteousness. You see, it's impossible to see the cross and to say that my way is hidden from God. God has come to this world to deliver his people. Your way is not hidden from God. Take comfort. Your way has never been hidden from God. Now, help me on this last part. As I shared before, there's a child who's missing from our town. I haven't heard any new updates. He's been missing for six days. I did reach out to his mom just to tell her, praying for her. She'd shared this on Facebook and asked for people to pray and provide any leads. I, I invited her here. How would you comfort that family? Surely she might feel like her way is hidden from God right now. 
that her cause is disregarded. Right? Where is my son? Why did he go? Where is God? Those are very normal, normal, normal reactions when we get thrown in the thick of the fire. Right? Why is my way hidden? With what comfort would you bring to her? With what truth would you tell her? Maybe she's listening now. I don't know. If she were here, I would tell her something that's hard to hear a little bit, which is that all of the struggles of this world are the result of all of our sin. Every pain, every anguish, every death, Every decision that hurts us and hurts other people is the fruit of our sin in this world. This was not God's plan for us to be filled with sin in the world to be wrecked by death. God is not to blame. But I would also say your way is not hidden from God because the same God who sees us has come to us in the person of his son. And not only did he come to us like a VIP, he came as a, pre as a peasant and he experienced the sufferings of his people when he died with them on the cross. God knows what it's like to lose a child. God knows what it's like to sweat and to die and to cry and for his own blood to be shed. And so we're never alone in our sufferings and our way is never hidden from God. Even when it feels like we are, we are not. And all I could say, if, if you're listening now, or if you ever meet someone who's in this is you've got to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and remember that his death shows that God is a God who isn't just up there. He comes here to save his people. If you want to experience the comfort of God, you must surrender to Jesus Christ, repent before him, and he will minister comfort. He, he, what does it say about the brokenhearted? He binds up the broken heart. What does Jesus do to those who mourn? He comforts those who mourn. Who compares to God? And that's your God I'm talking about. Your God is incomparable.